Welcome to Bath and Body Parts. I'm Melanie. And I'm Cassie. We're here to help you relax and unwind. It's time for candles, bubbles, wine, and of course, a tale of true crime. So go on, soakers. Settle into the tub. Let your muscles relax and your heart race as we dive into Bath and Body Parts. Cecilia King saw a picture of a murdered young woman flash up on the screen. Her heart sank. She and her boyfriend both turned to look at each other, dread in their eyes. They knew exactly who had done this. For Cecilia, this was happening all over again. But last time, everyone had called her crazy. Would anyone believe her this time? October of 1999 was an exciting time in La Cala de Mijas, located in the heart of Costa del Sol in Andalusia, Spain. Now, our two primary sources for this case are the Netflix documentary, Murder by the Coast, and the HBO docuseries, Dolores, uncovering the truth about the Wanakoff case. The Costa del Sol is a lively region in Spain, full of a big mix of culture and different demographics. It was originally a fishing village and eventually became a major tourist attraction, booming throughout the 1960s and beyond. The name was given to the region to bring more tourists and more prosperity, and it did. There were plenty of native Spaniards living there, but there was also a large British population. They congregated together and spoke primarily English. And this made it a magnet for British people who wanted to get away, wanted to disappear. And it also hosted a large crime population, sometimes called, quote, organized crime's southern frontier. In fact, in a recent Guardian article, a senior Policia Nacional agent said, quote, the Costa del Sol is a kind of hub or co-working space where almost every major criminal group in the world has some sort of presence. It's a UN of criminals for a globalized world. I had no idea about any of that. Yes, as well. I was diving into that and I thought that it was very interesting and I think it's very relevant to the case. So we wanted to give you a little bit of background about the area because it does end up playing a role, I feel. Yes, definitely. And it's kind of interesting because it seems to be sort of a mix, right? There's these little parts that are almost like a small town kind of feel where everybody sort of knows each other, but it's little isolated pops of different cultures. Yeah. But in 1999, for 17-year-old Rocio Wannenkopf, The Costa del Sol was home, the home she loved and thrived in. She was very close to her family, her mother, Alicia Ornos, her sister Rosa, and her brother Guillermo. While Alicia was a native of Spain, Rocio's father, Guillermo Vonenkoff, was Dutch. Now, his real name was Willem, but they always refer to him as Guillermo. Yeah, yeah. And he was at this time living in the Netherlands. He had returned there in 1984 when he got a divorce from Alicia. Now, her mother Alicia had moved on. At this time, she had a partner, Juan Cerillo. Rocio was a well-known and well-liked typical high school girl. She played soccer and had fun with her friends there. And in the Netflix documentary, they interview her soccer team and they have very fond memories of her she seemed to be the center of attention yeah 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 on the soccer team and the the one who was always joking around and getting everybody involved and having fun and she was so beautiful like her pictures she was very beautiful always smiling in all the pictures yes and she had a high school boyfriend tony and they were very much that stereotypical lovey-dovey high school couple that everybody knew were crazy about each other sure now that october the fair was in town and that was a very big deal the teenagers in the area were all excited to attend right like this fair was not the fair that just pops up out of like three trucks and it's rides and you know one snack yes it's like it was very like it looked 
like it took up a whole bunch of space, had a lot of attractions, lots of stuff going on, right? Absolutely. And for our American listeners or our English listeners, I think that we do need to keep in mind the cultural aspects to yes. this. In Spain, the fair is a big deal and it tours all over the country. And this is something that everybody went to. Right. On October 9th, Rocio saw her mother, Alicia, in the afternoon and filled her in on her plans for the evening. She was planning to go see her boyfriend, Tony, and then return home for dinner and head to the fair to meet her friends at midnight. And it's also important to keep in mind that this is Spain. They have dinner between 9 to 11, and it's common to be out a lot later. So her meeting up her friends at midnight... Sounds crazy to me, but right. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, that's actually totally normal if you're eating dinner at 10 p.m. Right, right. So that evening, Rocio did go to Tony's house, and they had actually previously had a little bit of a spat, but when she went, they made up, and they ended up watching a movie together and spending time together. And then at around 9.15, Rocio left to walk home for dinner, planning to meet up with Tony and her friends later at the fair. Back at home, her mother waited for her, growing a bit anxious. She had said that she would be home for dinner, and it wasn't like Rocio to not show up when she said she was going to be there. But she was supposed to go to the fair, so Alicia tried not to worry too much because she thought she knew where she was. When Rocio's sister Rosa returned around 4 a.m., she told Alicia that she had not seen Rocio at the fair. And Alicia felt in her gut that something was wrong. And as soon as morning rolled around, she called Tony's house looking for her. Now, Tony had not seen her since she had left to go home. And he actually had not gone to the fair because he didn't have any money. So Alicia walked to the house of one of Rocio's friends. And that's when she learned that Rocio had never even shown up. She went walking around looking for Rocio. And not far from home, she saw a blood stain and one of Rocio's shoes. And I cannot even imagine that, the dread upon seeing that. So she contacted the police immediately who came to search nearby. Near the original bloodstains, they found drops and trails of blood. As they followed them, they found Rocio's other shoe, which had been dragged through a field. They also found a tissue with bloodstains, tire tracks in the mud, and a cigarette butt. So all of the evidence was gathered up and the search was on for Rocio. Days went by and the search continued. This was really devastating for the community and they turned out in massive droves to look for her. They said that it was estimated that 6,000 people were involved in the search. That is so many. Like that is a community showing up. Yes. Which is a really good thing, but it's sad that they have to do this. It's very sad. So they made flyers with her picture on them and distributed them everywhere. They searched on horseback, dirt bikes, and on foot, and they were looking everywhere. They even organized the search in grids where they would dictate which groups were going to go where, and they had it all drawn up so that they could make sure that all the ground was covered. And the community held vigils. The media reported on the search every day. This is something that the entire area was talking about. And of course, in the meantime, the police were gathering and analyzing the evidence. Now, the blood was confirmed to be Rocio's, and all the DNA gathered belonged to a female except for the cigarette butt, which had saliva on it belonging to a male. And this was in 1999, so DNA was a thing, but it wasn't as advanced as it is now. Sure. Now, the Guardia Civil was brought in, and they are a national military police group. And they have different facets to address different crime specializations. And the specific one that was called in was the UCO. We would call them the Central Operating Unit. And they were brought in for serious offenses like murder. They were considered experts in the field. Yes. The UCO put together a profile of the attacker, and they really believed that this was someone close to Rocio or someone that knew her based on the bloody tissue. Their argument was a stranger wouldn't give you a tissue to clean up, so someone that you knew might do that in terms of criminal psychology. 
And the Guardia Civil then started interviewing family members and friends, which is a normal place to start in the investigation anyway. And we know the first suspect is always the significant other. So they go to the boyfriend and they leaned pretty hard on Tony. And his alibi was that he had been asleep, which was vouched for by his mother, Charo. But they were skeptical of this. Now, they brought him in and they pulled out every cop trick in the book. You know, quote, maybe you didn't want to do it. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe she fell and hit her head and you got scared. You know, all of these tactics that we're very familiar with. They did the good cop, bad cop thing. And they were like tossing chairs around and like very intimidating And remember, this kid is a teenager. Like, he's just this high school boyfriend. And they interrogated him for hours. And at one point, Tony even told his mom that he felt like if they didn't leave him alone, he was just going to buckle under the pressure and confess, even though he didn't do it, just to end the intense interrogation. And that is really upsetting to hear. Yes. And it made me think a lot about false confessions in general. And I kind of wanted to dig into that a little bit. So I was studying false confession psychology. And what I was reading is it happens when police interrogation causes someone to doubt their own innocence, essentially. And it usually happens in three steps. Step one is absolute conviction by the police that this person is guilty. And it kind of throws the suspect off because it's hard for them to reconcile what they know with the fact that they believe the police are there to analyze evidence and that they wouldn't be doing this if evidence didn't point to them. Oh, yeah. If I was being interrogated by a police officer and they said, you did this, I would be like, well, you probably have something to prove that I did it. I didn't do it. I believe you. And then they kind of take advantage of that you being thrown off and they supply a reasonable explanation something like she fell and hit her head and then you freaked out and it gets to the point to where the person then doubts themselves and they actually go back and try to remember and there's nothing to remember because they didn't do it right so they just take details that the police have dropped and they formulate a fake confession and they start giving details that are often incorrect, but often the police will kind of guide them through it. Yeah. I got all that information from a report put out by the Journal of the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law. And it's very interesting. So I'll drop that in the show notes if anyone's interested in diving a bit more into that. And this really does play into the case because that is what we hear Tony basically saying. He really thought that he was going to confess to something that he didn't do just to throw them off of his back. And the UCO were really cutthroat, high-level authority, you know, military police. They're very intimidating. So I picture this being a very scary situation for a teenage boy. Yes. They eventually backed off of Tony after realizing that he didn't have a car and he also didn't have a driver's license because the tire tracks at the crime scene indicated that the suspect drove a car and put Rocio in it at some point and then reversed the car and drove off. So potentially knowing that Tony did not have access to a car would have been a good thing to know before you started interrogating him for hours and hours and hours. Oh my goodness. So days continued to go by with no signs of Rocio and the community kept searching and searching and Alicia was on the front lines every day. And she really was. I mean, she was physically at every place and I she was extremely involved just feel so bad for her yeah it's heartbreaking for sure after 24 days Alicia heard that a body had been found the body of a young woman was discovered under a row of hedges separating two developments you had to climb under a fence and look under the brush to even see the body the body was naked and there were garbage bags nearby with clothing By this point, the body was badly decomposed. Heat, rain, and time had just not been on their side. And the body could not be identified just by looking at it. 
But Rosa identified a ring on the body and a T-shirt nearby, confirming what police suspected. And when Alicia heard, she let out this soul-crushing scream. You can see footage of this because the journalists were outside of her house waiting to kind of gather that reaction. And and you can actually hear it was very devastating. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the autopsy was difficult because of the decomposition. There would have been no sign of sperm. There really weren't even organs left. It was essentially just a skeleton at this point. They were able to pinpoint that there were injuries to the vertebrae and ribs. And there were also eight stab wounds. One was to the back and one punctured the lung, which was the fatal blow. And all of the stab wounds were quick and frantic. So the medical examiners did believe that she was either stabbed so quickly that she didn't have time to react or that she was restrained so that she couldn't fight back. The Guardia Seville put together a theory that while walking home, Rocia was hit from behind and she tried to run away into the field where she was viciously stabbed, dragged to a car, forced into the trunk and driven away. And when the body was found, it was positioned with the legs splayed out and she didn't have any clothing. But they really believed that this was staged to look like a sexual assault which they felt like just confirmed their theory that this was somebody that knew her Mm -hmm. and that this was all a ruse, basically. They found fingerprints on the plastic bags, two textile fibers on the body, and they also tried to analyze the tire tracks, but that did not take them anywhere. They continued interrogating friends and family as well as questioning potential witnesses in the community. And based on their investigation, they were able to form a pretty good timeline. Rocio left Tony's house between 9.15 and 9.30, and she had been spotted at 9.40 walking. A taxi driver had heard a scream and seen a car with no lights on the side of the road at 10 p.m. So they had a pretty solid timeline, but the investigation didn't turn up any immediate obvious leads. And because this was the Guardia Seville and because this was such a big deal in the community, there was a lot of pressure from the family, from the public, from the media. Yes. People were really demanding answers. It's it's one of those things like when a case garners a lot of attention, it's a good thing because it gets people involved and, you know, the chances of them finding something is elevated, but also that pressure gets elevated too. And that's just something to keep in mind as we continue with this case. Yes, we see a lot of that in this case. Media is important when someone goes missing or when a crime is committed because keeping that interest and keeping that pressure is paramount to an investigation. However, it doesn't always come out the right way, which we definitely see in this case. Most definitely. On November 20th, Rocio's funeral was held. And since the Guardia Civil believed that the killer knew Rocio, they were sure that the killer would be there and at the burial 12 days later. The town and the media flocked to the funeral and the burial. And when they carried Rocio's coffin to the burial site, there's this moment where the community burst into applause for Rocio. And in the documentary on HBO you see this and you hear this and it is at first like I didn't know what was going on because I thought maybe it was just someone screaming like I wasn't sure if it was a good thing or a bad thing but then everybody started clapping and you know everybody's carrying her coffin and the cameras are up really close and it's just like this really emotional moment and I I would encourage our listeners to watch it absolutely it was very overwhelming to watch and I do think that yes some cultural differences probably play in here but the funeral sure I cannot overstate how many people were there it looked like so many. thousands and thousands of people and yes. the entire region seemed to be here which I think is very different than what we would have here in most cases yeah there's this moment where they're even going to the burial site and they have to make way for Alicia to even get there because so many people are there. And, yes. like the, and it, even her own mother. It seems like the journalists are standing in the pathway. Yes. From them yes. to walk through with the body. So it, it was yes. very different than what 
I think we're used Very to seeing. Very different. Now, shortly after that, suspicion fell on Rocio's own family. Turns out that the area where the body was found was right next to a tennis club that her uncles, Jesus and Serafin, had tried to buy. But the deal never came through. Now, their response was that somebody was out to get the family. Yes. So a, a theory is forming here, right? The Juarez yes. Seville are thinking, okay, this is somebody that knows them. And this is further proof because yes. either her family is involved or it's somebody who wants to make it look like the family is involved. Right. Now, both Jesus and Serafin had alibis. Jesus was out of town and Serafin was with his wife and kids. So they were dropped as suspects. And then a promising lead popped up on the police's radar. A British millionaire living in the town named Cliff Stanford appeared on television offering up a large reward for information pertaining to the case. Now, Rocio had babysat for him and he had actually bought her a motorcycle to get from his home to school easier. And suspects, you know, they often interject themselves into investigations. So this whole putting up a reward made the police take a closer look at him. Yeah. And he's like holding press conferences and yeah, he's out yeah. there putting his face out. So I can definitely understand why this seemed a little suspicious. Yes, for sure. But he did have a rock solid alibi. He wasn't even in the country at the time. Now, months went by and the Juarez Seville were not reporting any leads. And again, pressure was mounting. People were not happy with the fact that this investigation was not going anywhere. Right. Now, they assured the public and the family that things were moving behind the scenes. And in August, they started implying that they were preparing to make an arrest. Now, this was at this point close to a year after Rocio's body was found. And around this time, Alicia started to give interviews saying that she knew that the murderer was trying to get revenge on her and urging the murderer to come forward. And then on August 21st, 2000, a leak was published in local newspapers saying that the Juarez Seville had narrowed their search to three suspects, two men and a woman. The woman's identity was uncovered by journalist Maria Dolores Loli Vasquez or Dolores Vasquez. And from that moment, the two alleged male suspects were essentially forgotten. And actually throughout the course of this case, we never really discover who the Juarez Seville had in mind or if that was even accurate information. Right. Because the media just latched onto Dolores and that's it. You don't really ever see these two suspects pop up again. Yep. Every journalist in town started reporting that the prime suspect was Dolores, a, quote, close friend of the family. And she was named. People knew who she was. Alicia gave interviews saying that she was devastated because Dolores had been very close to her. She had helped her with the kids after her divorce and that she was like a sister to her. And the press couldn't get enough of Dolores. They called her cold, calculated, domineering. And it's one of those situations where everything that she did, they then took a reason yeah. to say, oh, this proves it. You know, this is, uh -huh. oh, look, if she's walking away and she's not giving an interview, they're saying she's cold. If she puts up yeah. her hand to the camera, she's dismissive. You know, it, it's yeah. very much, they're shaping. There was nothing that she could have done right. Exactly. In their, in exactly. And she was smeared by almost every leading journalist at the time. And honestly, reading the headlines and listening to the news snippets, you would think that she had already been convicted. They were fully convinced of her guilt. Oh, for sure. And then it came out, there was an important element behind the way the media portrayed Dolores. Because it turned out that Dolores was not, quote, like a sister to Alicia after all. They had actually been in a romantic relationship. And Alicia did pretty quickly admit this freely. She didn't seem to hide it at first. She wasn't. Mm -hmm. putting that information out, but it's not like she was trying to hide it. Once it came out, she confirmed. Right. But interestingly enough, the media did not report that. They always said close friend, personal friend, best friend. Now, this was in the year 2000, and there was still a ton of homophobia in Spain. Gay marriage was not legal until 2005. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's hard for me to remember what it was like when 
this was something that was not talked about so right. much. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It seems very recent, 2000, but it really was. Right. They didn't want to use the word lesbian. They were obsessed with Dolores, but they almost deliberately ignored it. Yeah. As a way of saying what it was without saying what it was. Right. If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to bonus content and extra mini true crime cases, plus get access to our exclusive Bath and Body Parts bath bombs, we'd love to have you join our Patreon as a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber. Visit patreon.com slash bath and body parts to learn more. Dolores was a hotel manager who had worked in Britain, and she was bilingual and the youngest of three sisters. She had an elderly mom who she cared for that lived with her for a while. And she had lived next door to Guillermo and Alicia, and she had been friends with him. Alicia had actually suspected her of having an affair with Guillermo, but they became friends after the divorce. Now, Alicia accuses Guillermo of domestic violence, but that's all that we know about that. And there's nothing to prove or disprove that. In the HBO docuseries, the two separately recount their relationship. Now, Alicia tells the story as Dolores being the great love of her life. She had never been with a woman before, but she had that like tingly butterfly feeling and fell for her really hard. But Dolores, however, said that she never loved Alicia. They were in a relationship, but for her, it was more about the kids. She had wanted to have kids, but hadn't been able to. And she adored Rosa and Rocio and Guillermo. And at school, they said that they had two moms. So they were like a really close family unit, essentially. However, when Dolores moved her sick mom into the house, things started to turn sour. Alicia said that Dolores's mom was always trying to get in the middle and disapproved of their relationship. She even says that Dolores once grabbed her mother by the hair and dragged her after she insulted Alicia. Now, Dolores refutes this, and she said that she adored her mother and would never lay a hand on her. She said that Alicia got it in her head that her mother didn't like her, but her mother never actually said or did anything to indicate that. And according to Alicia, the relationship ended because Dolores defended her mother against her and her mother poisoned her against Alicia. According to Dolores, the relationship took a hard turn when she took a business trip and left Alicia with her mother. And after she returned, her mother told her that she wanted to leave and go back home. Dolores wasn't sure what had happened, but she knew that something happened. And I I do think it's interesting that Alicia says, well, Dolores you know, physically attacked her own mother to defend her against me, but also our relationship ended because she didn't defend me. Right. And she chose her mother. Yes. It is interesting for sure. Either way, the two split in 1995, which is four years before Rocio's murder. But Dolores maintained a relationship with the kids. Rocio would go to her house to make pizza. She told her housekeeper that the children were always welcome in her home, and she did have a good relationship with all of them. Now, during their investigation, leading up to Dolores being outed in the media, the Guardia Seville approached Alicia and told her that Dolores was their prime suspect, and they asked if she would have any reason to harm Rocio. Alicia told them, yes, She believed that she was the killer because Rocio and Dolores had not been getting along lately and Rocio did not approve of the relationship. She also said that Dolores was angry and possessive. And when she found out that she was in a relationship with Juan, she kind of blew up. She said that Dolores had shown up on her doorstep in the middle of the night threatening her. But according to Dolores, this situation did happen, but the other way around. Alicia found out that she was seeing someone and she showed up yelling at 2 a.m. Dolores said that even though she did maintain a good relationship with the kids, she hadn't seen Rocio in at least a few months. But Alicia told the Juardia Seville that Rocio hated Dolores, that she had been a big part of their relationship ending and about them not getting back together. And that really became their focus and their theory of the motive. Now, Dolores was completely blindsided by 
all of this. Before she was named as the suspect in the news, she even received a phone call from Alicia shouting at her for killing Rocio. And she had no idea what was going on. Oh my gosh. And shortly after that, the Fuardia Seville called her in and she thought that they were going to explain whatever Alicia was talking about, which she assumed was just some big misunderstanding. But what Dolores did not know is that she had been the focus of the investigation for a long time. Back in January of that year, Dolores's maid, Tatiana, had given a statement to the Guardia Seville. She said that while Rocio was missing, Dolores had taken a knife and stabbed one of Rocio's missing persons flyers in front of her, saying, this is my problem, this is my problem. And when confronted with this story, Dolores told the Guardia Seville that that was not what happened. She said that she had been trying to explain to Tatiana what had happened and why she had to keep going out and helping with the search. And since Tatiana didn't speak any Spanish, she had been using the flyer to show her what was going on. She had even used the word problem in English while explaining to her. But she states that she never used a knife. And in the HBO documentary, Dolores is interviewed. She raised the theory that perhaps the Guardia Seville manipulated Tatiana into giving a false statement in exchange for residency. Mm. That, I mean, mm-hmm. could... I could see it. I could see it. Strong theory. Now, the Guardia Seville continued to push Dolores, telling her that they had witnesses and fingerprints to prove that she was the murderer. They asked where she had gone that evening and what she had done. Now, she had her niece and her husband in town then. And they had gone out with friends and she had babysat their little girl. And she was also caring for her mother. But both of them had been asleep and neither could vouch for her. They told her, maybe you might not remember. Maybe you blocked it out. So again, they're kind of almost trying to create this confession, right. whether it's false or not. Like, oh, you, maybe, your, maybe your brain just blocked it out. Like, okay. They threatened her saying, quote, when we get done with you, even your lawyer won't believe you. Now, Dolores willingly gave her DNA and her fingerprints. And despite what the Guardia Seville had told her, nothing came back to match her to the scene of the crime. They also questioned her about her car, a Toyota Celica. They asked if she had ever lent it out to anyone, but she said no. But in October of 1999, shortly after Rocio had been found, the Guardia Seville said that they saw a car with two men stop near where the body had been to get out and look around. And they took the license plate number down and discovered that that car belonged to Dolores. Dolores later said that she remembered she had lent it out to Alicia's brother for him to go out with a friend and that it could have been that day. But the Guardia Seville said that they felt like they caught her in a big lie because she had said that she had never lent her car out to anyone. And it certainly doesn't look good to say, oh, no. No one Never. would ever, ever borrow my car. Oh, but... Except yes, this one time. This, this yes. last time. Yes. But um, I don't know that it's like a glaring bad situation that somebody had her car and went to the scene of the crime. I feel like right. especially with it being right there near the tennis club where they had been wanting to buy the tennis club. Uh-huh. Or they even could have been looking for evidence. I can think of a lot right. of reasons why people might go there. Sure. However, there is also the idea that criminals will return to the scene of the crime. Yes. And despite having no physical evidence, they then had enough for an arrest warrant. And Dolores was arrested on September 7th, 2000. And she was put in solitary confinement for her own protection for a few weeks before joining the general population. Yes. It is common for criminals of certain crimes to be put right into solitary confinement and and those like high high profile yes, cases exactly yes. this was everywhere so it made sense for that to happen but i'm sure that was also very hard to go into solitary confinement oh sure now the media kept going after dolores they pointed out that on the day of her arrest it looked like she had quote no remorse And they also said things like, how dare she be at the funeral near the family, which is really interesting to me because those are things that are are just assuming her guilt. Why would you have no remorse for something that you didn't do? So they're criticizing her for having no remorse. And like, why wouldn't you go to a funeral of someone who was 
essentially part of your family unit. Exactly. Like, you could spin it that way, but they chose not to. No. And they, they do use that no remorse as almost evidence that she's guilty. Oh, yes. Which is oh, just yes. so interesting to me because she wouldn't have had a need to have remorse if she wasn't guilty. Yep. Alicia appeared all over the media. And I mean all over the media. And she was everywhere saying that Dolores had killed her daughter. She was begging for justice. And from prison, Dolores sent a letter to the press proclaiming her innocence. Now, her lawyer, Pedro, came to visit her every Saturday. And he really felt confident that the case would not progress. And he's featured pretty heavily in the HBO documentary. And I really love hearing him talk. Uh, I love Pedro. I love him. Yes, Pedro is awesome. The reason why the Juardia Seville had waited so long to make an arrest was because they had no evidence and they were still looking but had nothing to tie her to the crime. And there was even a video released of them saying they had no evidence, yeah, <laughs> no physical evidence. And so Pedro really felt like this is clearly just going to all go away. Right. But in the meantime, Dolores was in prison and this was really hard on her. She was being screamed at and called dyke lesbian, murderer. She was enduring rape threats and death threats. It was not a good situation for her at all. And at one point, she even asked Pedro if there was a chance that she had done it and just somehow couldn't remember. Again, the entire time, the Juardia Seville, is, they're like yeah. drilling this into her head, right? They're drilling this into her head that she had to have been the perpetrator. And at that point, when she's having such a hard time in prison too, it's like, when you're left alone with nothing but your thoughts, then you're like, that's all you can think about is what they've been telling you. And then you're like, well, maybe, maybe, maybe my brain did block it out. Oh, exactly. And there is this belief that the police are there to serve and protect you. Yeah. That's what we're told. Yeah. From the time we're little kids. So there's an authority there that's right. kind of hard to, to reconcile that with what you know. When you're in that situation. Definitely. Now, the media got a hold of a report that said that the textile fibers that were found on Rocio's body potentially matched some of Dolores' clothes. But despite the fact that these fibers would actually match 90 to 95% of manufactured clothing, the media reported it saying, quote, fibers on the body could match clothing belonging to Dolores Vasquez. And everyone else. Right. <laughs> yes, God. that part wasn't in there. And no, of course, the way that they that say it is almost yep. as if it's a given, right? Right. Now, it quickly came out that the fibers didn't even match anyway. So this was all a hullabaloo over nothing. Sure. Now, Pedro filed for Dolores' release based on a lack of evidence, but the Malaga High Court denied the request. And the next step was a trial. Now, it's important to note that jury trials were still relatively new to Spain. They had not been the norm there for many years. And I think that we really see how that plays into how the jury is handled, how jury selection happens. Everything seems a bit amateur in the process. The lawyers were only going to allow four jury disqualifications. And Pedro asked potential jurors about homophobia specifically. Now, two of the jurors were interviewed in the HBO documentary. And one of them stated that she was asked if she had been following the case. And she said yes. She was asked if she thought that Dolores Vasquez was guilty of murder. And she said yes. But she was still selected to be on the jury. Yes. And, you know, Pedro says, well, I only had four disqualifications. And I think he felt like there would be so many people that would say this because the case was everywhere. Yes. There was never a mention of moving it to a different jurisdiction or anything like that. Everybody knew what was going on. Everybody had heard of it. Yeah, it makes Yeah, but it is unfortunate that somebody who said, yes, I believe that she's guilty was selected to be on the jury. Yes. The trial started on September 3rd, 2001, almost a year after her arrest. And this was an absolute media circus. There were lines and people crowding and people interviewed said they could tell that Dolores was guilty because she was so, quote, cold looking 
and that she, quote, showed no signs of remorse or reaction. Again, why why would she? Yes. <laughs> I, I feel like they wanted her to break down and be this very emotional person. Right. I'm like, and what does that even really look like? Like, did they just, they just wanted that, like, outburst? Because saying she was cold looking, I mean... She was just herself, like, I, and I don't she was know. trying to know. stay calm and yes, you know, pr- trying not to break down, especially after being in prison for this long. Like, I am someone whose defense mechanism is to shut down, and I feel like that would be me. I would not show a reaction, you know, because I would that sure. would be the only thing keeping me together. Mine is like the opposite. Mine is <laughs> to have all of the emotions <laughs> all the time. So I feel like even if there was one ounce of attention on me in the media, I would either be crying the entire time or like laughing like a crazy person or just like not knowing how to react. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the public and the media criticized Dolores for things like doing karate and working out and even having a like a raspier voice. And I want to point out, it's not as if she's doing those things now. They're just pointing to the fact that she has done these things as further evidence that she's a bad person. They're like, oh, she's done karate. My goodness. (laughs) And, you know, it is clear that there was this underlying homophobia and definitely sexism playing its role. And even though nobody was coming out and saying it, anything that was considered masculine seemed to be unacceptable for Dolores. Now, this is not the language that we have seen regarding men in similar circumstances. I've never seen anyone talk about how cold and you know showing no remorse male suspects are yep it's very it it feels very pointed definitely and Beatrice Jimeno is an important figure in the Spanish movement for LGBTQ rights and she's the author of a book called La Construcción de la Lesbiana Perversa or The Construction of the Evil Lesbian that she wrote about Dolores Vesquez And in some of her prominent work, she has talked about gay machismo, which is her theory that lesbian women will be doubly discriminated against because they will receive discrimination for being gay and also for being women. And I feel like that's very much the case for Dolores. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. Now, in the trial, the prosecutor harped on the jury that they could consider, quote, clues even though there was no evidence. They often talk about this. Oh, well, there were clues. There were clues. Uh The clues. Even the Guardia Seville say this. They're like, it's fine. The clues. The clues. The clues. The clues. Which is interesting to me because I don't know that I've ever heard that word tossed around in the American legal system in that way. No, 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 no. I would hope not. And while I was watching the documentaries, I even thought, well, maybe clues is the terminology is the equivalent of circumstantial evidence. Sure. But then they later use the term circumstantial evidence. Uh-huh. So I, I feel like it's not. So like they really just mean clues. They just mean clues, which is very interesting. Yeah. And these quote clues included what they had already confronted Dolores with, including Tatiana's statement and the car, which I feel like the car is a big stretch. And Tatiana's statement is the biggest Indicator, the the most important, quote, clue to me. Yes. But also that's one person's statement. And Dolores has a contradictory statement to that. So I do think that even though that becomes the cornerstone of the case, it's not a smoking gun by any means. Sure. An employee of the restaurant by Dolores' house also claimed that he had seen her in the store at 11 o'clock buying cigarettes and she looked very restless. Dolores said that maybe she did buy cigarettes, but it would have been earlier in the evening and she would have had no reason to be there at that time or to appear nervous. The Juardia Seville stated that her personality traits matched that of a domestic abuser. And on the stand, one Juardia Seville agent was asked if there was any evidence to prove she was guilty. And he said no, and then put his hand on his heart and said, this tells me she's guilty. Oh, my God. (laughs) Which just feels like that is pulled from the worst Um, CSI or Law and Order SVU episode. That is like not even, like, that is not even 
episode material that is like fan fiction material that is like a csi fan fiction like well you know what tells me that she's guilty this right here like what shut up (laughs) no it's so bad a prison psychologist took the stand and said that she did have personality traits that would make her dangerous, that she would explode at little things, that she was predisposed to violence. However, when asked if she had ever met Dolores, she admitted that she hadn't. She was basing her conclusions off of an entry form at the prison. But the next day, (laughs) the headlines reported in the paper, prison psychologist says Dolores Vasquez is violent. (laughs) Of course. And, you know, there's a handful of very honest journalists that are reporting this. <laughs> yes. And one of them is on the production team for the HBO documentary. And she's interviewed in, in both documentaries. And she just points out that that was a moment that she realized how bad things were yes. in terms of the media because she had been in the courtroom and then she saw those headlines and she (laughs) felt like that's not at all what happened not exactly what was happening and then they put a psychic on the stand (laughs) named marissa seviano who said that dolores had confessed to her that she had killed rocio there you go this is someone that dolores (laughs) did not know that'll do i don't know why a psychic is brought to the stand well you know (laughs) you know that's just what you do (laughs) there's a lot of things where i just feel hmm, (laughs) interesting (laughs) and those things that i just mentioned those clues are pretty much the extent of the case for the prosecution There's nothing else. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. So Dolores was questioned for six hours by the prosecution. And the questions were mostly centering around her personal life. And she remained calm. And that seemed to rile up the media even more because, you know, there she goes again, being cold and distant with no remorse because she's being calm. Now, Alicia held a picture up of Rocio in the courtroom and she turned toward the jury and she testified that Dolores had become angry when she had started seeing Juan. And she said that Dolores told her, quote, I'll get you where it hurts the most just a few months before the murder. And Rosa, Rocio's sister, also testified that Dolores had been aggressive in the last year, but admitted that she had a fine relationship with her the entire time. So here's the timeline as constructed by the Guardia Civil. Dolores had placed phone calls at 8.45 and 10.35. Rocio left Tony's house at 9.15 and was spotted at 9.30 and 9.40. Screams were heard between 10 and 10.30. Now they claim that Dolores went out for a walk at 8.45, took a knife, ran into Rocio, argued with her, killed her and then took her body into the field now one jury member in the hbo documentary said that she fully believed that the killing was not premeditated and they say that dolores then returned home placed the phone call and asked someone to help her move the body and i feel as if there are a lot of holes in the story yes first of all you either believe that she planned to do this or that she didn't plan to do this, right? right? So if you believe that this was premeditated, you believe that she somehow knew exactly where Rocio was going to be. Exactly. Somehow. And also that you somehow got this all done between 845 and 1035. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you believe that it's not premeditated, then you believe that she just takes a knife with her on a walk yeah. and that very quickly a conversation with Rocio is going to escalate into murder. It makes perfect sense, just, doesn't it? <laughs> neither of these make any sense at no. all to me. No. Yeah. Throughout the trial, though, Alicia and Rosa were all over the media and they were emotional. I mean, this is their yes. daughter and their sister and they have very real grief feelings yes. that you can see on their faces, yes. their body language, and their voices at all times. They're very raw. They've been through a great loss. But on the other side, Dolores didn't really speak to the media. She's not showing a lot of emotion. They don't like that. Right. And Pedro would speak to the media, but it was very short. He, you know, he was 
Yeah. Well, I'm just focusing on the facts. So he would say, if there's any doubt at all. He's like, I don't have time for any of the bullshit. It's like how he comes across. He's not in the media playing up. He's not trying to to build emotional appeal. He's saying, well, there's reasonable doubt. So the jury must acquit. He's coming from the legal standpoint and he's not wrong. Yeah. However, in this case, Alicia is winning over the media and the public. Yes. Yes. And that would be one thing. But the jury members would buy newspapers and watch the news during the course of the case. No, no. see, amateur, amateur court behavior. Yes, this is so unacceptable. So everything that's being reported, they're taking in while they're on the jury. They're getting all that access. It is mind-blowing to me that this was allowed to happen. Yes. And then it's kind of shaping what happened, right? So when the media says... Well, the prison psychologist says Dolores is capable of murder. Yes. That almost implants into their minds. Of course. And they almost misremember it. Yes. Right? Yes. On September 17th were the closing arguments. And Dolores gave a statement. She pleaded, look for the culprits because I did not do this. Pedro, in his closing arguments, pointed out again that there was not a shred of evidence to convict her. There was nothing to tie her to the crime. The timeline was... Had a bunch of holes. <laughs> yeah. Very tight at best. Again, They never even come up with who they say helped her move the body. Right. right. They don't have any of that nailed out. And the prosecution in their closing statements stood up and said, yes, we have no conclusive proof, but we have enough clues for you to convict. Those good old clues. The clues. And that, Soakers, is where we're going to end today's episode. It might feel like we're approaching the end of this case, but believe me when I say we are not, there are plenty of twists to come next time. If you're a patron, you can go ahead and listen to part two right away. Otherwise, tune in with us next week to hear the rest of the tale. Until then, self-care for the best, prepare for the worst, but most importantly, take care of yourself. We'll catch you next time on Bath and Body Parts. Body Parts merch, snag your shirts, mugs, fanny packs, towels, and more at bathandbodypartspodcast.com slash merch. If you'd like to support the show and get access to VIP perks like ad-free content, early access to episodes, and extra episodes each month, along with special segments and exclusive merch, including the Bath and Body Parts Bath Bomb, you can become a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber on our Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash bathandbodyparts to get started.